You're listening to Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Activia. Activia offers a range of yogurts that help support a healthy gut. Your gut is where it all begins. Leia Healthcare. It's good to live. Proud sponsor of the Real Health Podcast with Carl Henry. Hello and welcome to the Real Health Podcast in association with Leia Healthcare with me, Carl Henry. As ever, every single week we try and bring you tips, tools to improve your health. And we bring experts in to get some information for you. Today's expert is author, chartered psychologist with 18 years experience, Alison Keating. Alison, welcome to the Real Health Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. How's it going? Very good. Yeah, great. You have a wonderful new book out. Tell us about it. So I have The Secret Lives of Adults. Uh, it's my first book out at the moment. Um, and I'm getting superb feedback from it. So I suppose from my clinical perspective, I, I have found that I've heard very similar themes across the board, especially with adults. Um, just people coming in and just saying, I'm completely overwhelmed. And yet in their normal everyday life, their public face would be that they're very successful, they're functioning really well. People would be like, oh yeah, you know, Carl, he's the really calm guy. And yet, you know, you might be actually have some fears or doubts or normal worries that everybody has. And what I'm finding was the gap was getting bigger and bigger. So the public face that people knew, and that's who you are. And then the private fears, that gap was widening and widening. And I think people were falling through it. So when I was talking to them, just these themes kept coming through each and every time. And I thought, you know, it's not about getting down to the why. I think a lot of times people think, especially in psychology, you have to understand the why. Why did this happen? Why am I like this? I mean, why is useful. But if you have the flu, knowing why you have the flu doesn't actually get rid of it. And I feel the exact same way in terms of mental health. So you have to have the how. How am I going to actually change this? What do I actually need to do? And my whole, you know, ethos and experience is taking evidence-based practice, which is just bountiful. And then, you know, giving that out to people so that they actually have the tools to know what to do. And I suppose throughout the whole book, there's lots of questions. And really what it is, is you're asking a psychologist a question and you are giving the answer to yourself. Okay, so it's identifying things that you, about your own mental health, can associate with or how you feel. And it's giving people tools and tips to solve that or improve that. Very specifically within your relationships. So it actually starts with understanding yourself which is the core relationship. And I think what I saw was, so I have like this Russian doll on the front of the cover. And the idea is that we are one person, obviously, but within we have all these hidden inner lives and we're just so stretched. So any given one person can be that one person, but then you're running off to work and then you're a parent and then you're, you know, someone's son or daughter, uh, you're a partner. And if you have children, you're a parent. And the friends sometimes can get down in the pecking order, but they're so, so important. So it's looking at those individual lives that we all lead, and we're all somewhat different within each of those respective lives. Being a relatively cohesive person, and yet being able to mind yourself, which I think often is the most important relationship, but it's the one that we definitely put on the yeah, back foot. And presumably that's one of the hardest ones to assess. I suppose one of the key things that you come across all the time is adults saying how tough adulthood is. Mm. And that's a, that's something, a common kind of theme that you're seeing all the time with your patients in your clinic. A hundred percent. And I think it's a very normal, everybody can relate to it. Like life is so busy and sometimes it's just too busy. And what I'm seeing is not that these are psychiatric issues. These are you know, highly functioning people 
who are just finding the constant juggle too much. And it's interesting, say, say, you know, for about like the last 10 years, I was seeing like an epidemic of anxiety and panic disorder. I'm actually seeing that now turn into burnout. And I think it's because people have been running at such a high level. You can only go for a certain amount of period that it turns into burnout. And is that modern day life? Is that a symptom of being, you know, on email all the time? So a phone is now not a phone, it's a computer. Oh, yeah. it, it's being, con- you know, contactable all the time, uh, permanently on and being permanently attached to something. Is I the burnout a, a symptom of that? That's one part of it for sure. I mean, you know, it's definitely playing a part, but I think it's it's our relationship with it as well because, you know, you can turn your phone off. You can actually put it on silent. These these options are actually available to us even though most of us don't actually avail of it. Like, if I go on my phone before a night, I actually say to myself, you're not going to sleep tonight. You're now choosing to stay awake for the night because I know I will not sleep. What if, time do you turn your phone off at? I'm so bad. <laughs> I'm improving. I can't lie. <laughs> I, I, I know that I need, I need a wind down time. So I might get into bed and I would listen to a meditation. Now, the meditation is on my phone, but I kind of turn the light away because it does, basically that light just turns a chemical off in your brain that actually you need to go to sleep. It's actually just turning the light off in terms of right now I'm awake for the night. So, I mean, it's just recognizing the choices that you're actually making. And again, when we, we hear a lot of talk about mental health, we hear a lot of talk about self-care, but I think it's been somewhat mixed up in this kind of concept of, you know, walks on the beach and things that sometimes we can't actually fit into our daily life. Whereas I'm more about, you know what, do a one minute meditation. If you just stopped, took nice deep breaths, 15 of them, that's a one minute meditation. And, and we can all do that. You can do that in the car, when you're sitting in traffic, you can do that in the queue. And when you're saying is burnout a symptom of our, our modern society? Yes, but what we have within our ability is how we respond to it. And that's the crux of the book is that no matter what's going on, you have the ability to choose your response um, because life is and adulthood is it's bananas for most of us. It really is. Like I, I wrote this from a clinical perspective, but I completely get it. Like I am all those, you know, inner dolls and I'm sure all of us are as well. We can totally relate to it. And um, so I think it's just taking that and then saying, right, what tangible things can I actually do? So I suppose it's about taking personal responsibility for the symptoms uh, and taking that, that step to trying to lessen the symptoms or improve the, or like, turn the phone off. It's a, a mm-hmm. personal responsibility to, to counteract them. So let's t- talk us through the seven relationships and let's give us some simple tips okay. for our listeners for each one. Um, so the self is the first one. So the first relationship is me, myself and I, which is your public, your private and your unconscious self. So the public self is surface, but it's not superficial. I mean, you need to be able to go in and order a coffee in the morning. You, it would not be a good idea to hug the postman. It's, it's not appropriate. So our public self is very important. Um, it's the face that we meet and greet people and have that normal conversation at the school gate. Our private self is more private. Um, they are our fears, our doubts, our vulnerabilities, our feelings of shame, our, our fears that we don't share with everyone. Or we might share with a very small few. You have to think who is in my private circle. And those people normally are very trusted people because you, it, to have that level of vulnerability, there needs to be a level of kind of, they accept me as I am. And that's actually where true connection comes from. So the private self is very important. From my perspective, when the gap between the private and the public is too large and no one knows about the private, that's when you kind of raise a flag. And that'll be, I suppose, Irish male syndrome is we, we keep it in. We don't talk about feelings, fears, vulnerabilities. It's getting be- it's getting better, possibly. Do you know, it's really interesting. Like, 
I do see more women than men, but I have to say I see a lot of younger men and they are so much more equipped. They have such a better kind of emotional vocabulary um, than perhaps a couple of generations did. So I, I am seeing more of the, of the younger men, say from 18 to, to 40. Um, sometimes I wonder, I, I'm not necessarily seeing the 65-year-olds, so perhaps they still are, 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 are struggling with that kind of, oh, God's sake, I'm not going to talk about my emotions, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but we still have a long way to go because I think, say specifically, if we look at male friendship, Women get great support and, and the stress is buffered by the support that they actually give to each other. Whereas men rip each other apart. They really do. <laughs> when, when the men tell me about the slagging they give to each other, I'm like, and it takes a lot to shock me. I'm like, really? I'm like, ah, yeah, it's grand. I'm like, but it's not really. Because in that private moment, when the door is closed and, it, and we're having this talk, it does, it does get to people. You know, whether it's about drinking. Drinking is a common one. Okay. Say specifically with men is that, you know, uh, they, they feel they can't say, I'm not having a drink tonight. And the peer pressure and, you know, literally ripped apart your, your, your idea of not being a man. So I think our kind of shift in allowing men to be masculine in different ways is definitely improving, but it's a long way to go. Whereas we allow women to be soft and strong and capable, yet vulnerable. I don't think that's fully there with men yet. Okay, so I suppose the first relationship is about yourself, the public, the private, and closing the gap between the two. Yes, try and close the gap between the two. But that requires insight. And insight, we all, a lot of us think we have great insight into ourselves, but to be quite honest, it's really difficult. And the main reason of that is because of your unconscious. So your unconscious is the third aspect of your your trilogy of of self. No wonder it's complicated. Um, And this was formed from naught to three. So a huge amount of your belief systems and just how you perceive the world has come from watching, learning and seeing. It's kind of like how the world works 101 from your parents. But it's a lot of it down to procedural memory. So basically it's like, so, say you learn how to ride a bike. You know how to ride a bike, so you never question it. You just get up on the bike and you, you ride mm-hmm. it. But the same happens with our belief systems. So we carry these ideas about ourselves, about how we're going to be treated. Um, and this is where all the attachment aspect comes into it in terms of, am I a valuable person? Or, you know, I think when people say something positive to me, you're, you're able to take it on board. Whereas someone, say, who's had a more negative experience, they'll have what we call hostile attribution um, bias, where they think if someone says something, they're like, what do they mean by that? Hostile attribution bias. So if people have treated you well, you have a bias that you you would give people the benefit of the doubt. So, for example, they showed uh, children this video where, uh, and it's supposed to be somewhat ambiguous, that a child sitting, having their lunch, someone comes over and spills milk on their back. They then ask the children what happened in that scenario. The children who had been bullied or had be, you know, weren't as accepted within the class group, they said it was done on purpose. The person meant to do it. Whereas the children who actually were quite popular were like, oh, they must have tripped. And I mean, that's what I find fascinating at, at the core of the research. No matter what's actually happened to you in your life, your perception of the situation is actually what it makes the situation what it is. OK, so it's not the situation, it's how you perceive it. Yes. And does that tie back to being an optimist or a pessimist then? The wonderful thing about optimism um, is that it can be learned. And I think... You can, OK, that's... You can learn it. We're going to stop the podcast there for one second. If you're listening in and you are a pessimist, you've heard it from Alison directly. We can flip that. We can turn that. Hopefully you listen to the Real Health podcast to 
become more optimistic and to learn more positive things. As a show, that's what we try and do. Mm. Okay, so you can learn to become an optimist. So one of my favourite psychologists, I'm one of these real sad little nerds who have favourite psychologists, but my favourite psychologist is Martin Seligman and his background was 30 years of working with depression. And one day he said, this, this is too much, I'm actually becoming depressed myself. So he, he took all the knowledge that he had in terms of what made people depressed, why some people were more pessimistic, and he categorically looked at it and tried to glean what they were actually doing. And from that, he began to say, well, what do optimists do? So this is basically where psychology turned on its head. So about 250 years of psychology was looking at what was wrong with you. And our goal was to get you from minus naught or minus five to naught, which is not great. The goal of psychology now, say more specifically in positive psychology, which is strength-based, which is what the whole book is about, is to get you from naught to five. And how do you take each step? So in terms of being an optimist, what he did was he went into secondary schools to kids who were 10 or 11 and he taught them specific skills. So what an optimist does is when something bad happens, I'll give an example of say someone gets fired. Obviously that's not happening in school. But just as an example, if, if, if a group of people, a floor of people are told, right, you're all being let go, the pessimist goes, I knew my boss hated me. I knew he did. The optimist goes, I knew this industry was, was falling down. Say it was like architects in the recession. So the optimist is specific in taking the information, but not taking it personally. They recognize that it isn't actually pervasive and that it's not going to go on forever. They will actually leave that building and need to find another job. If there isn't another job in their area, they will go and retrain. So it's that level of, okay, this is the situation. What can I do about it? And when you're saying at the beginning, it is that sense of accountability. Okay. What can I do? No matter what's thrown at you. No matter what situation or what's happened in your life or your past, like this book isn't about your parents did this. I'm not a parent basher. No matter how bad or good your past was, it is it is not a, an excuse to kind of go, oh, that's just the way I am. You yeah, can so it's, it's not change. a blaming company. You no. blame your past and then use that as an excuse for everything, to Absolutely. destroy everything else if it's, a, if it's a negative. It's to recognize your triggers. So your triggers say with the unconscious. Your triggers are things like that are very deep seated. So things with criticism. How do you deal with criticism? How do you deal with rejection? So, you know, something somewhat minor might happen and then all of a sudden it floors you and you're like, my God, why am I so upset by this? And you'll find that it has a very old emotional wound. So that's the concept of the first chapter is actually getting to know yourself as best as you can because you will never actually have full access mm -hmm. into the unconscious, but you will be able to have a better sense of, and I think it's interesting to look at it, like they say that strangers have a better kind of click of you than you do of yourself. And in a way, I can see why, because there's, there's things about yourself that you wouldn't know, like some of the questions, the whole book has loads of questions. So the first question is like, who are you? Well, how do you know you're like that? Or how do you actually think other people perceive you? And even when I was going through the book myself, I was answering all the questions. I was like, God, I wonder how they do actually see me. And it makes you think. So I suppose the first, the first relationship with yourself, it's about closing the gap between public and private. Uh, in terms of the private component of being more open yeah. uh, with your feelings, with your emotions. We're getting better at that as a nation, which is great. Uh, and then it's probably also about reflection, maybe. Yes. Reflecting on you as a person, your past, and then learning the, school, the, the skills and the tools to improve that or yes. to improve how you handle certain situations. Yeah. Be fair? Absolutely. Okay. Second relationship. The second relationship is called mum and dad. So this goes to the crux 
of what psychologists are interested in and it's attachment. So the attachment is about the relationship that you have and had with your parents as a child. So from naught to three, this happens and it's incredibly strong in terms of how your brain hardwires. But what attachment is about, it isn't about your parents just walking around holding you all the time. It's how emotionally responsive were your parents to you? Did they listen to you? And it, for myself, sometimes now, as I, I think about parenting nowadays, a lot of times the parent's head is, is, is in their phone. Now, mm -hmm. they might be answering an email for work, but that level of connection can only happen through looking into someone's eyes. And attachment creates this idea and you have this model of how the world is. From your sense of attachment, so say you have secure attachment, you then know that people are reliable, that you can trust them, that, you know, um, they will go away and come back. So this is where kind of, you know, you see very young children and the parent goes out of the room and they go absolutely ballistic. The child with secure attachment, when they come back in, they'll get a cuddle and they'll be okay. Then you'll have other types where if the parent was inconsistent, I mean a lot, you're never going to be a perfect parent. And I think we need to like just bang that on the head. But it's the level of consistency that we're actually looking for. So the, the second chapter is, is getting to grips with attachment. And I would love if people genuinely came away from the book understanding attachment as much as they do other things like, you know, pop, like people could tell you all the names of the Kardashians, but they, <laughs> they would not know what attachment style they have. And I'm like, wow, that's kind of more important. <laughs> so talk me through the styles of attachment then. So you would have a secure attachment style. Yeah. You would have an so that's trust, faith, yes. um, uh, comfort. Uh, what exactly. Else? Yeah. You can give comfort. You can receive comfort. It's just really healthy. It's a really healthy basis for a relationship. You expect people to treat you well and you treat them back in return. You're able to go away from them. So you're independent, but you can depend on them. So it's, it's a lovely base. Security. It's security in a nutshell. Which gives you the, 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 the ability to go on and do better things or greater things because you have you've a secure base, whether it's with a partner or a parent yes. or a work colleague or a company exactly. or no matter what it is. It's having a, a baseline of security or, or platform or pillar to go and do other stuff. A hundred percent. And can you see then how that impacts every single relationship? It affects every single relationship because how you view yourself and your self-worth, your, your sense of self-efficacy, you know, what you can actually change about yourself and the world, it comes back to that. With, say, avoidant attachment style, the parent might have been somewhat inconsistent. Perhaps one day they will be like, oh, I love you so much. And then the next day they're, they're completely the opposite or they're over-inclusive and they're telling you everything about their problems and it's just too much. Um, so it's just about recognizing, you know what? Attachment styles are very hard to change genuinely, but you can earn your attachment style. And I suppose what I'll bring it into is that you can, it gets re-triggered in your relationship and then as a parent as well. So we'll see how the thread goes along. Of course, there. for your other relationships. Exactly. Course, so. so it's just about saying, do you know what? Whatever it actually is, I'm going to take it. And now I'm going to actually um, recognize how can I change. Something I've been really amazed with over the years is, say, people who had dreadful relationships and a really bad start to life with their parents. They can actually have and repair those relationships. So the whole kind of theme of the book is, yes, this is where the thread has come from. 
but you as an adult now have a responsibility yeah. as well. So it's reflection, self-responsibility, and then taking the tools to deal with it. Exactly. With, with each one. Folks, you're listening to the Real Health Podcast in association with Leia Healthcare with me, Carl Henry. We're delighted to be joined today by Alison Keating. We're chatting very deeply. I feel like this is my own psychology <laughs> session. Uh, I've had this with Eddie Murphy before. It's always when you get a psychologist at the studio and they're looking straight at you like, this feels like therapy. Uh, but it's been fascinating so far. We're talking about key relationships and how to deal with them. The key message so far from our chat is what I'm getting is very much about reflection, about yourself, your your, your, your relationships in terms of that security or not, mm. taking responsibility of um, your own situation and getting the tools to deal with it. So that brings us into relationship number three. Which is with your siblings. Okay. So your siblings, <clears throat> they're the longest and most influential um, relationship you'll have in your entire life. And I think it's really interesting because people... I can't, they, they, again, they can, they're either very close to their, their siblings or they might not see them at all. So, I mean, that's one of the kind of core characteristics with, with your siblings is that you had very intense relationships, at, you know, when you were kids. You were either running around, beating each other up, pulling each other's hair. You loved each other one minute, you hate each other next. So they were intense relationships. I think the issue is when you become an adult, you can't pull your sister's hair. Um, so you have to actually now find a verbal way of actually communicating with the people who know how to press that button. They're like, I know what drives you crazy. <laughs> and they're like, I'm going to press That's the button. That's the Christmas Day row, generally. Is oh, they're, God. They're in a, in a nutshell. No matter what, like, <laughs> you know, you may leave here like Carl Henry and I'll leave here and I'm a psychologist, but we walk in the door at Christmas and I'm like, I'm 10. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you go straight back into that mode and everybody does. They're, are what, they're the dynamics. So that's where I see just these threads all the time and how they weave in between all the relationships. And sometimes they can be amazing and have great bonds of strength and, and connection. And sometimes they can be toxic. Yeah. Talk me through tips then for people or for listeners listening in. The positive one, not so much. I think that's a little bit easier for people to maintain that. But for listeners who would have negative relationships with their siblings um, or it's not potentially what they want it to be yeah. what tips or what should they do or there should they a, not or? yeah well it depends right so I mean I do uh, broach in one part about toxic relationships so sometimes there can actually be very dysfunctional relationships within families within siblings within with the parents and it can be a really messy dynamic now you will know if it's like that in your family in those situations it can be useful sometimes to go do you know what we don't work together well and we don't, I, I think it'd be better if we didn't actually have a relationship. I know people are very surprised by that, but, you know, you have to have two people who are able to have a conversation. And sometimes if you know you're going to be hitting your head off a brick wall and they're not going to hear you and they're not going to change. And I suppose that's a big tenet of the book as well. You can't change anybody. I know we want, we all, we all say, oh, I don't want to change anybody. Of course we do. You know, you'd like your husband to be a bit tidier. Or you, we all want people <laughs> to be a little bit. But the idea that they can change is very important. You've got to know what can change and what can't and what can I accept and what can I not accept. So some relationships, they're better not to be an actual relationship. For the rest of people, say that there's this kind of loss. I think, I think a lot of adult siblings can feel a sense of loss to, my God, we got on so great as kids. Now I kind of barely know them. So how do you make that connection again? Um, and then if there's something specific, there's a great exercise called the conversation. And the conversation is basically you write out, first of all, the feelings that are actually coming up for you. So say, for instance, you just feel somewhat estranged from your sibling and you just want to connect again or it's just not the way you actually want it to be and you miss them. So you write out how you're feeling about it first. This is completely private. You don't show anybody. 
And then you have a choice of actually going to them and saying, listen, you know, we got on great as kids. Um, I know life is really, really busy, but I would love if we could have a conversation about something that means a lot to me. Either we can just have this conversation or I have this exercise I use myself. I found it really, really helpful. It helped me identify exactly what I was actually feeling. Would you be interested in doing it as well? They're either going to say yes or no, and it's that simple. Um, and then I think when two people come at it where they've actually thought about it a little bit, and like what you're saying about reflection, the pause is a major tool within the book. Just pause, just reflect, and then give the person the choice and then have that conversation. And it's it's an amazing tool to completely change the dynamics. Sometimes people don't even know that the other person feels like that. And again, the research that goes into, you know, your sibling relationships, if one person feels that the, that, that, that connection is not actually there, it was a predictor of depression in later life. And I mean, really core things when you ruled out other factors, such as someone actually just being depressed. But I think your sibling relationship is one that they know you. You have such a long history together. And when we look to a more aging society, you quite likely will be, you know, minding your parents. How are you going to work with that as, as a family? That can create a lot of issues um, with adult siblings. So these are things that just think about how can I actually strengthen this relationship? Go for a coffee, have a chat, go for a walk. They can be small things. They don't need to be, let's go on holidays together for two weeks, but just actually connecting in. When was the last time you just rang them and said, hey, how are you? Rather than listen, can you pick up Lucy? Um, I'm running late. That, that kind of sense of getting something from them. You're actually wanting to spend time together. And I suppose it's the simplest, the simplest things that can improve the relationships. That's what I'm getting from what yeah. you're saying. It, it's that phone call. So when, when did you last ring your brother and say, how's it going? Absolutely. I'm thinking that myself. <laughs> like, I actually I don't know. remember. Uh, it's going to be an interesting like, walk into the studio and say, I've been ringing all these people I haven't <laughs> talked to for a long time. But you know what? We're, we're losing, like, <laughs> uh, and I ha and definitely I, I was at a talk last night and they were they were really funny and they said, basically that people were sending emails all the time and they're like, yeah, yeah, but I've sent them an email. And they're like, yes, I know, but you need to pick up the phone. Yeah. And they're like, the phone doesn't have a disease on it, yeah. you know. And we do need to have that face-to-face -face or even a telephone call. Or even a FaceTime. FaceTime is fantastic. FaceTime really, I think, is is a really good substitute. Um, obviously, you can't do that walking in the street, but I think just that... Some people do. <laughs> yes, they do. Yes, absolutely. I was behind somebody yesterday. Where was I? I was in a shop and they were chatting away really loudly and we're in the queue and, I'm looking, and then look at the phone and like they're chatting to someone in... I said, where they were? They were, they were very, very far away. L live in... It was the maddest thing. It was like, yeah. seriously, it's like the, the, the cool thing to do. Um, okay, um, relationship four. We're flying. So basically, first one, folks, if you're... Um, just to recap, is to look at yourself. Yes. Uh, the second one then is to look at your parents. Third one is to look at your siblings. Pick up the phone, talk to them, look at them, make visual like visual contact or verbal contact. I'm a serial texture. I'm really bad at that. Um, the fourth relationship. The fourth relationship is your romantic relationship. So this one often re-triggers your primary attachment to your parents. So right. basically, two people come into a relationship, but you also bring a third component. You bring in norm. And norm is your own set of norms within your family of origin. So, for example, I might come into, it, um, into a relationship and in, in our house, Christmas is a big deal. Everyone's very excited. It's all very glittery and fun and lots of presents. Whereas my husband might come in and it might be like much more relaxed. 
um, the present is as important, but it's about family being together. And then all of a sudden we have two different norms. Now, that mm-hmm. sounds like a very basic example. But what happens is you are bringing in kind of intergenerational kind of ideas about how things should be, even in terms of how you should love, what you expect. Uh, so our expectations of relationships, we rarely question them. And I think we are, I'm definitely from the, the, the generation where um, it was all fairy tales and like, and they lived happily ever after. <laughs> and I mean, it's so funny when I was in college and we were studying like mythology and fairy tales. I actually haven't read a fairy tale, not one to my kids because they're so dark and they're so gendered. <laughs> and I was like, wow, this is unbelievable. But in terms of romance, so much stuff gets re-triggered. Um, and I think there's a really negative kind of narrative that's going on in terms that romance can't survive, that, you know, monogamy is, 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 is a really old fashioned idea. Whereas the absolute scientific fact is that we are neurologically wired to connect for survival. And I'm loving the research in the area of love because it's so heartening, excuse the pun, um, and it's also so practical. There's so many things you can do to strengthen your relationship. Okay, give us your top three. Okay. Putting you on the spot. Mm. We do top threes on this show always for our listeners because it makes it really simple for them to get all the content uh, and, and to get it snappy and quick. Okay. So if your relationship and your romance or the romantic component of your relationship has, has flatlined. We see yes. that, for example, on Twitter and Instagram every Sunday. I put up these lists of like oh, healthy like to-do lists. lists for They're the very week. good. I like them. So four weeks ago, uh, we put up these lists on Twitter every single week. And uh, Four weeks ago, I put one up and had sex in that list. I saw that. <laughs> People went mental. Mental. We had a 25% less uh, retweet and like um, numbers purely because of the fact that I put sex in there and people just couldn't. And then I put hugs in there and people really couldn't. They went, totally put them overboard. So, um, why do you think that was? I thought that I, <laughs> I was laughing my head off. I was like, wow, we, we, you know, so much talk about sex and everyone being so sophisticated and, you know, and then the. It's the maddest thing. People literally hilarious. couldn't deal with it. So my point <laughs> is this. Uh, if your romance is kind of flatlining in your relationship, not just on the sexual level, but generally, how do you, what, what are your top three tips for okay, people? Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll bring it to sex for the first, right? Because it's, it's a bit of an oxymoron now. It is very important, but it's not the be all and end all. I do think it, it kind of tells a tale of the health of your relationship. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if you remember in, was it Mr. and Mrs. Smith? And um, Angelina Jolie Angelina and Brad Pitt, Jolie, yeah. and they're sitting in front of the therapist, and the therapist goes, "When did you have sex last?" And they're like, "Hmm," <laughs> and it's too long. And then at the very end of the film, it finishes on, and obviously they're having lots of sex. And they're like, "Ask us a sex question," because they were just <laughs> delighted with themselves. But I think what happens is to actually genuinely be having good sex, to feel connected, you need to be connected. You need to be talking. It's showing the emotional connection within your relationship. Because, I mean, again, it's perhaps a mismatch. And obviously, there's so many different types of relationships. But say specifically with a man and a woman, men feel more connected when they've had sex. Women need to feel connected before they have sex. I just think that's mean, the way that was organized. So I do see why dinner (laughs) and the romance aspect works as a date. Men, if you're listening in for the male uh, population who listens to our podcast, there's a really simple tip to take away. Dinner and the whole precursor (laughs) is crucial to a healthy relationship. It is, yeah. because, you know, when you've sat down and, you know, you've 
women like to talk about what's going on in their heads. They don't necessarily want the man to fix the problem. This is where female relationships, they get on so well because women will just, they're kind of like talking the headlines. It's like this happened, that happened, this happened. But for the male brain, that comes in as like a shotgun of problems. It's like there's one, two, three, four, five problems. Which will I solve first? It actually hurts their brain. I did that in my house. So <laughs> I will give you a massive tip on that. The woman actually just wants you to listen. She does not want you to fix the problem. And then you will actually have more sex. <laughs> that and tidy up. There's research to back that up. Um, but I think uh, I think it's okay, really interesting. So the, tip. Say, the tip with the sex... I think we need to be more comfortable about it. You need to talk about it in your relationship. There's a list of questions that I have. So on my first edit on Father's Day, I sat down with my dad and went through the whole book. And there's only one aspect in the book about sex in the relationships part. And he said, he, we got to the sex part and he just looked up and he laughed. I mean, he went, a list, Alison. <laughs> <laughs> but my list of questions were very specific. And I think it would be great as a couple if you did it. Okay. Specific questions were, what is the best sex you've ever had? What is the worst sex that you ever had? What actually turns you on? What turns you off? When do you ever talk about that specifically as a couple? So if both people sat down, did the exercise, brought it to dinner, I think you would have a really great fun night. You probably need a very large bottle of wine to go with that dinner <laughs> for an Irish couple to, to sit down together and do that. But they, again, it's it's the same. The key thing we're getting across the, the four relationships so far is very much about reflection it's looking back it's analyzing stuff and then looking at how you can improve it yeah. and then for every single relationship so far which is brilliant because it's, it's so simple exactly which it doesn't have to be really complicated really highfalutin or, or or whatever it's reflection and and analyzing and right now we're going to do this and, and improve it so Alison relationship number five parenting so I think sometimes you know we have a couple and they're so happy and they're so in love and and as soon as you get pregnant people have opinions about, you know, what way you're doing it and you get all these cliches. You'll never know love like it. Um, oh, go, say goodbye to your sleep. La, la, la. The truth is they're all true. The, the funny thing about cliches, and, and it kind of kills me to say it, is that they're cliches because they are so true. Time flies. Parenthood is unbelievably joyful experience and utterly terrifying. So it's an absolute roller coaster of emotions. Again, like when we looked at the relationship experience, now you're bringing in being a parent and this is where your procedural memory kicks back into gear. Both of you have an idea of how to parent. And it's so unconscious. It's so embedded. No, this is how you discipline. No, this is when they should go to bed. No, this is how they should actually do this. And for couples, I mean, the worst thing you can do as a couple is have a baby to save your relationship. God Almighty, it's a ridiculous idea. It really is because you, the strongest relationships will be tested again and again and again. So this is where you get to your ugliest self, you know, where you're exhausted, where you are absolutely sleep deprived. You know, you're deprived of everything. If you've brushed your hair that day and had a shower, you're winning. OK, so it's just to kind of step back and all of a sudden it becomes about that can become quite fractious between the couple because like, well, I did this and you did that. And specifically gender roles really kick in here. So what you, your idea, your norm of how a woman should be as a mother on your side and obviously the father, his idea, and sometimes these clash. And again, it's just not actually talking about your expectations, your hopes, your dreams. 
And I think if you could stand back and have a conversation about, look, what things do you see your parents do that you would like us not to do? What things do they do really, really well that you would love us? And I think it's creating a kind of a little parental circle of how you want to do it as a couple yourselves. It's a great start and um, because what happens is you're going to have arguments about things that seem ridiculous. You're fighting over, I don't know, who packed the dishwasher wrong because, of course, they did it wrong because you did it this way in your house. <laughs> um, and, and I mean, you know, I have had people say we're going to get divorced because they left their cup on the counter again. <laughs> and I mean, you know, it seems silly. But for me, my ears prick up when I hear words like should or this is really silly, or I shouldn't feel like this, it means that you're really, you're pulling off an old wound and there's something very, very deep. You know your reaction's completely ridiculous. So you minimize it and then you lose the ability to actually figure out what actually is going on here. So there's where the pause comes in again, that you could turn around to your partner and say, you know what, I totally overreacted there. I'm really, really sorry. I don't know what happened, but I actually am really upset. I don't know why I feel so upset by this, but I do. I'm really angry. I'm really upset. I feel like crying. Then you can have a conversation. And I'm telling you, if you if you continue to have that conversation, it will go back to something that happened. You will get, to the, it, will get to the bottom of it. So for parents listening in, it's about, I suppose, working together and establishing a set of rules or a set of guidelines that, that, that you're going to jointly parenting by. Maybe. Would that be, yes, would that be, would that yes. Be fair? And rules that will change. Because, you see, with every child that you have, they have their own, we call them temperamental templates. So everybody has their own sense. Like, for example, you might have one child and they're totally outgoing and they want to be on the street the whole time and having a great time. You might have another child who's totally happy just to be sitting in with you in the kitchen and they're colouring away. And each child will bring, like, they'll bring you back down to earth. Children are the best mindfulness kit there is because you know if you ever tried to walk my, my youngest is three I try and walk with her anywhere and I'll look a leaf you know we're looking at the leaf for a long time <laughs> but it makes me slow down and I'm like god they're so present so children give us a lot of gifts as well they're very very present whereas we're always racing charging ahead to the next thing um, but, but just recognising that whatever you've decided within parenting it's going to change again so you're just you're open and flexible yeah to kind of move with the curveballs as they actually so come may, your way. maybe use that date night that you are, you know, people yeah. recommend that you have. And part of that date night becomes a discussion on, you know, bedtime rules or, totally. you know, all of that. So, and that adapts monthly probably. Or, it does. Uh, yeah. But, but, you know, be open and talk, have a glass of wine, yeah. relax yourself a little bit and then bring it up and chat about it and discuss it and, uh, and work together as a, as a unit. Okay. What's number six? Number six is your relationship with your friends. And I have to say, I was blown away by the research in friendship. It is linked in with living longer. Uh, being isolated and having less friends is as bad as smoking. Um, it changes your DNA and your immune system in terms of feeling accepted. And then if you feel rejected, it actually kills certain parts, you know, that these can be regenerated. But we're actually, what I love about the science of human beings is that we're, we're now able to see, specifically we say with functional um, MRIs, we're seeing now the impact of rejection. We're seeing what impact loneliness has. We're actually tangibly able to say, yeah, if you are actually not connecting with people and you're, you're feeling completely isolated and lonely, it's like smoking. I, I think that's an unbelievable fact. 
So when you're saying about, you know, this is simple, I completely agree. But if you think about it from your perspective, everybody knows what they need to do to lose weight and be healthy, right? It is the exact same in psychology. A lot of psychology is utter common sense, common sense backed up by research. The understanding part of it isn't difficult, but sitting down, writing out. Mm -hmm. it, if, if I ask one people to do, to do one thing with the book, it would be write those things out. Don't just fly through it. You have to write it down. Again, neurologically, the, the actual act of writing something, it encodes it into your brain in a completely different way. And it's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to actually do that. So your friends are something that I think within adults that we sometimes think, do you know what? I, I'll, I'll do that next week. I'll do that next month. You're putting it on the long finger. Mm -hmm. But they're now saying that your friends might be more important to you than family in your older age. I thought that was unbelievable. When I looked into it a little bit more, they were just saying because sometimes, say if, if, you know, say if you're elderly and you're not well or whatever, that your family have a sense of duty towards you. So that kind of connection is, is not as kind of free, I suppose. Whereas if it's just two friends, your peers, you're on the same level and you're just enjoying each other's company because you like each other. Mm -hmm. But the positive health benefits from that at a physical level, at an emotional level, at a psychological level, is, it, is that I just see it as kind of buffering wrap all around the person because there are so many stresses. And whether it's modern life, you know, in one way, life nowadays actually is safer. It really is, even though it's very, very busy. I mean, if we take it back 100 years, it was more dangerous back mm -hmm. then, really. So we have to say, look, this is life the way it is now. How can we change the quality of our lives? We have massive quantity lives. Mm -hmm. But what joy am I getting out of my life? What one thing did I do for myself today? And if that one thing is go and meet a friend for a coffee, then you go and you do that. So live healthier, live longer, live emotionally better by surrounding yourself with friends. Yes. Simple tip, simple fix. Okay, the final relationship. So it's work. Ooh, I, okay. And I, I, I kind of gave the chapter, I, I called it work, work, work. And I was singing <clears throat> Rihanna in my head when I was writing it down. They're like, do you not want to call it work? I was like, no, because it's, it is work, 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 honestly. And I think everybody is just, a lot of people are reluctant workaholics. And that kind of sense that you were talking about of being always on. I, I give this kind of silly analogy in the book where, you know, the woman's been working from home that day, but she's actually in her slippers. And then the doorbell rings and it's her boss. And he's like, listen, can you send off the quick email? Like, no problem. And she's like, God, it's a bit much for him coming to the door now, you know. But the truth is we are letting work in our front door every single night. Not only is work coming in our front door when we finish work, it's sitting on the couch when we're supposed to be watching TV with our partner. It's also coming to bed with us. And that's a very sad fact. And that will affect the sex too. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that basically, you know, I don't know. I, I, I like the way the Dutch live. They have it down in terms of quality of living. And one of their core things is, is about the, the, not just a work-life balance. And I much prefer this. They have a life-work balance. Life comes first. And your job is, is kind of, it's very, very important to who you are, but it's not everything. Now, I think it's easier said than done because they have a very good system over there where mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, you, you pay very high taxes. So a lot of stuff is, but it, I think I do understand why people are, both people have to work a lot of times just to keep the mortgage. And, and I mean, I do think financially for people, it is really, really tough. They're not doing it for no reason. So for, for listeners who have a work-life balance that's out of, or a life-work balance that's mm -hmm. out of kilter, 
top three ways to uh, to change that or to improve that? So the first thing to ask is, do you like work? Because what may present to me as someone might come in and say they're having anxiety. We dig a little deeper and actually they're having an existential crisis. So basically they have no sense of purpose and there's no meaning. And that very much feeds into their work. You've got to ask yourself, do I get any joy out of my work? Um, is there something else I would actually like to be doing? And it is possible to change. And if not, you may be able to keep your full-time job and do it as a hobby or do it. But I think it's incredibly important as an adult to keep challenging yourself. I don't think it's a good idea to work in a job that's killing your soul. And I think a lot of people actually feel that they have to do that. So you should love what you do in term, or certainly like what you do yes. in terms of work and ensure that it challenges you and you're not just sitting there bored every day. Absolutely. Boredom is very serious. I actually see boredom nearly worse than being overly stressed at work because it's, there's just a deadening kind of aspect to it that you, you lose your soul. Then all of a sudden you're just in Groundhog Day. So it, I don't believe if you do a job that you love that you'll never work a day in your life either. I don't know who said that. But the truth is you, you will just be happier doing what you actually want to yeah. do. If you can change kind of the structure of your week, say perhaps you do a five-day week, is there any chance you could do Monday at home or take Friday off as parental leave? I think those type of things make a massive difference. It's interesting. So say if we look at self-employed people, they are happier. They often get paid less. They work harder. But the reason they're happier is because they have autonomy. They can organize their day as and as they choose and feel fit. And I think that's something that we have to pull back in. So go back to HR. Say, look, do you know what? Um, I'm, 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 I'm really finding it quite difficult. At the moment. I, I like the job. I want to stay here. How can we make this work better? Go in with a solution okay. and a plan. Plan. Plans are good. We mm, like plans. I like plans. Folks, you are listening to The Real Health Podcast with me, Carl Henry, in association with Leia Healthcare. This is one of our longest episodes that we've done, but there's been so much content from Alison uh, about the seven relationships that, to be honest, I didn't want to cut it short because the content's been so good and so practical and motivating in many respects. I think a lot of our listeners are going to get that from it. Um, just give remind us again of the book. So the book is The Secret Lives of Adults, and it's your seven most important relationships and how to make them work. And it's available in bookstores nationwide. Absolutely. Folks, there you have it. A little reminder tonight is the live episode of the Real Health Podcast. We've got prizes to give away, Leinster and Munster tickets, signed rugby jerseys. We've got a health coach on site who's going to check all your health uh, components as well. There are some tickets still available. So if you're listening in this morning or this afternoon and you'd like to come along, it's at 8pm in the O'Reilly Theatre in Belvedere College. Do come along and say hello. We're going to have lots of fun. We've got an amazing uh, panel of guests as well as ever, aiming to improve your health. It's going to be lots of fun, and there's a few tickets left. Check out dublinpodcastfestival.ie or Aiken Promotions or ticketmaster.ie. Folks, as ever, enjoy the podcast. Any questions you have, do email us. It's realhealth.independent.ie. Contact us on social media. And ideally, don't forget to rate and review our podcast as well. We're up to 132 ratings, which I'm very proud of. And uh, even if you don't enjoy it, pop a rating in there as well. Have a wonderful week. And as ever, we'll see you next week. Leia Healthcare. It's good to live. Proud sponsor of The Real Health Podcast with Carl Henry.